the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. And we're coming to you on Caregiver SOS On Air. Carol is the former board chair at the National Council on Aging, serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and is a nationally known gerontologist. And we are delighted to be doing this program every week. You hear us Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're going to be talking in just a couple of moments with Jay Newton-Small. She'll be talking to us about her experience Living in a dementia care unit, what that was like. She was there to get a sense of what it was all about. She does not have dementia. She's CEO of Memory Well, a national journalistic writing program that helps people tell their stories when they indeed go into memory units. Well, and, you know, for most people, that is probably a very scary thought to actually move yourself in to a dementia unit, and we can tell you that she had the code to get out. And she could sneak out for a salami sandwich if she wanted. It didn't matter. I also want to share with you some pretty good news. Uh, Internationally renowned uh, Naomi File, who is a master's in social work, is running a workshop called Validation Method, Thursday, May 24th, from 9 to 3 p.m. at the San Antonio College's McAllister Auditorium. This is described as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet and learn from dementia Alzheimer's expert Naomi File. And if you're not in San Antonio, look for a workshop near you with Naomi. One of the things that strikes me as you take a look at all of the research that's being done, Carol, on a variety of diseases, uh, one of those uh, uh, diseases that just is awful is stroke. Well, you know, right here in our backyard in San Antonio, we are so fortunate to have UT Health San Antonio, and they have the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases. Wow, that was blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, Dr. Shashadri, who um, works, who heads up the institute, participated in this new study to look for, there used to be like 10 genetic markers where you could look at your genes and say these are 10 things that are a risk for stroke Um, and this study had over half a million people uh, across the world this was a giant worldwide study and they were trying to look for new indicators uh, new genetic risk factors for stroke and so they went from 10 to 22 so that means they've got 12 new risk factors and why would that be important? Why? Why? Good question. Why is that I'm important? glad you asked me because now they can work with the pharmaceutical companies um, and with other researchers that could lead for a treatment for dementia because one of the 
ways people develop dementia. We may, you may know someone who's had a multiple series of strokes, and the strokes can leave to dementia, and so that can it's help. It's killing a ton re- of brain cells. We're, it's killing a ton of brain cells, and so what we're hoping is this vascular disease uh, causing dementia from ischemic strokes, and that's you know when the blood vessels lose the blood supply. If you don't get blood and oxygen to the brain, it's game over and the cells die. Uh, that it's going to lead for a treatment, and so this is pretty groundbreaking. It, it's one of those things that you go, yay, we've got some more more that we can do. And anything that we can do to reduce the impact of strokes and reduce dementia, that is a good thing. One of the other things we know we can do is exercise. And I am always excited to find that, no, you don't have to do 20 minutes. You don't have to do 10 minutes. You don't need to do five minutes. How about... Two, Two minutes. minutes. Well, you know, our good friend Gretchen Reynolds from the New York Times uh, that we follow with all of her health and physical activity um, has found out f- for all of us who may think 30 minutes five times a week is a little bit hard to pull off um, is that the new study says prolonged exercise, that 30-minute, that 20-minute exercise it doesn't have to be that to be beneficial. So the, the the guidelines that said 30 minutes five times a week were written back in 2008, way back in the dark ages wow. at the turn of the century. Uh, and so they were updating them, and th- they realized that they didn't have a lot of research on duration of exercise. So they, th- you know, they thought, well, we'll do you know maybe 20 minutes. And what they found is that most older folks actually don't get 20 minutes of exercise at a time. So they were looking at, well, how about five minutes of exercise? Uh, And so they went through, they cross-checked all of the people in the study, looked at death records, um, and what they found is that exercise, more exercise does lead to less death. So A, exercise is good. This is not a surprise. What is a surprise is that these little small bits, your two minutes of getting up and walking around, maybe walking from the car further, taking that stairs instead of the elevator, all of that adds up. And so you can get your exercise in two-minute increments, and it's the same thing as doing it all at once. That's pretty good news. My uh, uh, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Uh, Potty, has told me as I'm rehabbing from my total left knee replacement surgery, he said, you have a second floor in your house. I said, yeah, that's where the kids' bedrooms are. He said, good. Why don't you just walk up there once a day? And then a week later, try going up twice a day. And your wife said, why not start going up three <laughs> times a day? Yeah, she's behind me with a whip. Yeah, up those stairs. Up <laughs> those up stairs. stairs. You see, she was, she was on the right track. I remember she was encouraging you to oh, get yeah. up those stairs. And the point is, more is not necessarily better. Right. Well, you're, you being, in, and I think you make a great point, if you're rehabbing from knee surgery, you know, 20 minutes of exercise on a knee that's still healing is probably not a great idea. That'd and, be a lot. And there are a lot of folks, caregivers out there who you may be working with someone who's in a frail condition. But the great thing is, is this is for you, the caregiver, and the person that you're taking care of. Both of you can get those little two minutes of exercise. Both of you are going to benefit in the long run with better health um, if you get those, you know, work in those minutes of exercise. What Dr. Robin Eikoff, a well-known medical director, always says is to the patient who she is trying to get up and moving and exercising when the patient says, but, but Dr. Eikoff, I, I can really only do a couple minutes. Good. 
Yeah, that's right. Do that. Well, and, it, and, and things have really changed. It used to be if you had a heart attack, I know when my grandfather had a heart attack, that was laying in bed in the hospital for a week, rest, rest, rest. And now with just about everything, it seems like they want, the, they want to get you up and moving, get that blood flowing and that oxygen going, you know, as soon as possible. Yeah, laying in bed doing nothing was the worst thing they could do. It was the worst thing. That was, that was wow. bad. So now we're going to get up, but we don't have to, you don't have to go jogging. Um, I say this all the time, and, and, and this is also the good news, is the biggest bang for the buck is going from couch potato to walking. So you don't have to be an endurance athlete. Two minutes walking around the house, taking that stairs, going from the car. It's all good. I was thinking the other day that TVs used to have knobs where you could change the channel. And you had to get up to change the channel. You had to get up to change the channel. They then invented the remote. They got rid of the knobs. And now to figure out how to change a channel manually takes a Ph.D. in engineering. Oh, and some of them, like if you have Apple TV, you can't. You have to have the remote, and it's tiny. Yes. So, yes. you know, it's not designed for those of us who lose everything. So enough with the two-minute walk. How about the Freebird Club? Well, the Freebird Club, A, I like the name, the Freebird Club. I was like, what does that mean? So this is Airbnb, which is the rent a house uh, from somebody else in another part of the country or part of the world for people who are 50-plus. So with Airbnb, if you've heard of it, there's an app. You can go on and go any probably just about any place these days every city in america uh, you know we went to um to europe this past january and rented a house and it was a very positive experience but the freebird club is for people over the age of 50 and unlike airbnb where they drop off the keys and the house is yours the apartment's yours they can't just drop off the keys it has to the people that own the home where the guests are staying have to be there for part of the visit. So you get camaraderie, you get relationships. And so this is for older people. Um, it provides income for older people who need income to rent out their homes, but it also provides socialization. They're not like, here's the keys and they're gone. So people visiting get socialized. People renting the home get to socialize. Sounds kind of like a good idea to me. It's probably an app for that. I'm sure there is. So check out the Free Bird, like the Free Bird uh, Club, if you are over the age of 50 or you just like the idea of visiting with someone. Now, I happened to see this next item in the news, and I said to myself, you got to be kidding me. Can you get two colds at the same time? Well, you know what? I had the same reaction because this is not fair. No, it's not. It's not fair because the answer from the New York Times was, yes, you can. Two colds at once would, would explain all those symptoms that go with a cold. So this is called co-infection, which means two things going on at the same time. There are like 100 viruses that cause colds, and so you can get two of them at the same time. Wow. Not fair at all. Um, and we still don't have a cure. And we still don't have a cure. So, you know, it was like the big flu season we had this year with the A's and the B's and the C's and the D's. I don't know, the influence of A and B. Um, normally, it, like only in 2% of the time would you catch two kinds of flu at the same time. But you could get flu A now and flu B later because you don't get immunity from that. And you don't get immunity from the different types wow. of colds. So once again, single cell organisms get the point, and we the humans get Zippo. Yeah, my wife ended up with type B flu a couple weeks ago. That's right, at the end of the season. End of the season. End of the and se we all had flu shots, but it didn't cover type B. Well, 
There you go. But it was a rough season this Maybe year. next time. Maybe next time. Well, coming up, Jay Newton-Small will join us. You may know her from memory well. We'll talk about that as well as her spending time at a dementia unit. Coming up next on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us Sundays at 6 p.m. and 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, as we have been promising, Jay Newton-Small joins us, co-founder and CEO of Memory Well, a national journalistic writer, and she works with uh, Time Magazine and Bloomberg News. We had her on several months ago talking about her well work in writing memories about loved ones who are going into memory units. She recently spent time living in a dementia care unit, voluntarily, had the code to get out, thought she'd see what it was like from the inside. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Ron and Carol, thanks so much for having me back again. Well, I was delighted to read about uh, your experience inside a memory unit. We had a guest on several months ago who was a caregiver who had moved with her husband into a memory unit and raised all kinds of concerns about uh, the quality of care and the quality of food and the quality of service. And the thing that stuck with me, and I think Carol as well, uh, was taco night when they only served tacos with none of the fixins, none of the hot sauce, nothing, just a plain old taco. And when she complained, the answer was, well, they don't know. They don't care. Oh. So we, <laughs> we, hope, we hope that that was not the experience that you had, but I, I must admit I'm curious because my, my mother lived in a Brookdale facility, and I know that is where the type of facility that you were in was a Brookdale senior living. So what was it like? Um, yep. Yeah, so I was in a Brookdale senior um, living facility in Fort Collins, Colorado, and it was part of their entrepreneur in residence program, which basically um, selects entrepreneurs that are going to be working with Brookdale um, to I live in Brookdale communities to get the experience of, of what it's like to live in a community, um, but then also to be able to talk to residents and talk to staff about how their products are being used and how their products, um, you know, might uh, be better adapted to, for that community and get feedback on our on our particular products. And so it was actually a really um, great week for me because I learned a lot about how um, different my stories, the stories that I write for Memory Well might be used in different areas. Um, but it was also, I have to say, a really personally poignant week for me because, um, you know, as, as I spoke to you guys in the last time I was on, my dad had Alzheimer's and 
Um, I was his primary caregiver for the last five years of his life. He was diagnosed when I was still in college with early onset at the age of 58. And um, he lived in a community. I, I, put, I put him into a community um, sort of for the last, I would say, three and a half, four years of his life. And um, I'd always wondered what it was like for him, particularly after I left. Um, you know, like I, I would obviously visit him during the day and we would sit and hang out and watch movies and, you know, and like listen to music or walk, we would walk a lot with my dog. Um, there, but I, I, I heard from his caregivers that he was a night wanderer, that he tended to be up kind of restlessly, like moving around the hallways at night. And I always wondered also, like, what was it just like for him when I wasn't there? And so living in Brookdale in, uh, in Fort Collins, sort of gave me that experience and helped me understand a little bit his experience. And so I guess, first of all, the thing that I noticed is that um, there are sort of, they they do tend to sort of soften the edges, right? And I think that, um, for example, if you're eating, there's no spicy foods. Um, There's like everything is relatively bland because you don't want to like upset people's palates. Um, you don't want people to, to get um, to accidentally eat that chili and, you know, end up choking on it or, or have a bad reaction to it. Um, there is a lot of choice of food because um, they choice confuses them oftentimes. I mean, these are people living with Alzheimer's dementia, and, and sometimes those kinds of choices can be hard, although they obviously take personal preferences and allergies in particular into consideration um now did they did they serve you the food did you like sit down at a table and they brought you here's your plate of the day yes they they did you know and i i actually got a choice um so since i was i wasn't there since i was i um while i was there they let me choose what i would like to eat but i generally sort of just said i'll I'll have whatever they're having just to have that experience unless it was something i was allergic to because i'm for example, we're just a shellfish and ate crab cakes one night, so I couldn't eat those. Um, but, uh, yeah, I sat, and they would serve me the food the same way they, they do the residents. Well, um, so, and so the food the food was served to you, and it was a little bit bland. Okay, so... What what about the um you know the, what tell, talk a little bit about some of the activities because it's you know my my view of watching my mother in the dementia unit was that the day seemed so long were the days super long for you or did they you know seem to have a good variety of activities? Um, no, they had a really good variety of activities. I think. I mean, I guess what I my biggest sort of takeaway is that I sort of raced for it to be kind of a depressing week. Um, and it really wasn't that depressing. And, you know, maybe it was the community they put me into, but um, these, like, they were mostly women, I would say, that, which is very typical for any assisted living. Um, you know, it's a lot more women than men, and that's just by a factor that women tend to live longer than men. Um, and it's also for a factor that women tend to um, suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia or live with Alzheimer's and dementia more than men do. Um, so it was mostly women. And they kind of would, like, rock it out. Like, every meal, one woman would start tapping her spoon, and then another would tap her plate, and another would tap her heels or, you know, like, stomp her feet on the floor. And they would get this sort of musical kind of show going. And, like, they're all on different beats and probably all singing or humming different tunes. But they all kind of would, like, start to, to get together and sing together, which I thought was really fun. Like, they had this great sort of sense of... Um, 
they really loved music and they would kind of create their own. And it was every single meal time they did this. It was really cute. Hmm. Um, right, now stay with and, me just a minute. Let, let me remind folks who've just joined us, they're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. And we're talking with Jay Newton-Small about her experience spending time living in a dementia unit to get a sense of what that was like. And we're hearing her story now about that experience. Yeah, so um, so mealtimes were fun in that sense. Like, they, they all were very musical. They also were incredibly sweet with one another um, and sometimes competitive. I mean, they played bingo ferociously. They totally kicked my butt. Like, I... <laughs> I <laughs> now, I how do you get kicked? Is that just bad luck that they don't didn't call I-35 <laughs> or... They gave all the good think, cards to the real residents. No, I think it's actually more the factor of, like, I wasn't entirely, I don't think I've played bingo ever in my life, and I wasn't entirely sure how to play bingo, and they all knew exactly which game they were playing. There's like, And I guess there's different kinds of bingo, right? It's like, um, uh-huh. you know, you do, like, the bingo. Board, you do different, like, kinds of patterns on the board, and so I was really confused about which pattern we were doing and, like, what was going on and, like, which and then sometimes I would like get distracted by talking to people and I wouldn't pay attention to numbers and they all were super sharks and like they were you know immediately they were like bingo and like they didn't get their prize they got really upset um, and so they were they were really on it and it would surprise me frankly for people living with Alzheimer's and dementia I mean they were much more on the ball I think than my dad um, was certainly in the last years of his life um, and. Um, but they also, we had this one exercise where they were reading a book and like, um, and the book happened to be, I think it was like chicken soup for the seniors or senior chicken soup or something. One of those chicken chicken soup soup books. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, um, and the, 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 the sort of commentary from the book was that, um, wrinkles were better than freckles because, wrinkles, each one sort of belied a lifetime of experience, right? And so, um, and it got them talking about their grandmothers, and these ladies were just so sweet. They were talking about their grandmas and how they would go, and one of one woman talked about how she would go and braid her grandmother's hair every Sunday after church, and another woman sort of said to her, oh, honey, that's so sweet, and, like, I'd love to hear your stories, and this is our life. These are our lives, you know? Like, even though it's small, and like we're, but when we share these memories, they might be small, but they're special to us, and we're special to each other. And they were just really supportive of each other in ways, and like also ways that surprised me a lot, um, and I really enjoyed. And so, um, you know, and it made me happy to think of my dad living in this, you know, potentially very supportive environment. So um, that was also really nice. Um, but like I said, there was also a lot of you know edges that were sort of dulled, like. You're, when you took a shower, the water it was never too cool, never too hot. It was always sort of lukewarm. Which doesn't um, really sound that pleasant. I know no, you're you right about you that. You mentioned that in the article about how you loved hot showers and your, your dad loved hot showers, but he obviously did not get them. No, because it's like they don't want people to scald themselves. So they're going to kind of protect you from yourself a little bit because um, they don't want to, you know, they don't want you to hurt yourself. Um, so in that sense, yeah, that's not that fun. Um, but like probably necessary, frankly, like I'm sure my dad would have called it himself. He could have. Um, and 
And then, you know, and then there was like, you know, I hung out with one of their night wanderers and would walk and spend a night walking around with him. And he was a World War II vet. And there was this sort of veterans wall that he would keep going back to. And he always wanted to talk about being a vet and then experiences where I'd walk with him. Um, it, was, it was interesting. It was definitely um, a unique experience. Well, sure. were, the, um, were the nights, did you find that they were, they were fairly quiet? I mean, you talked about this man wandering around. Was it... Uh, easy to sleep or did you find that every night was kind of like being in a hotel where I recently was disturbed by the flight crews that were staying at the hotel I was in and they'd come in throughout the night? So it was incredibly quiet and to be fair I was staying so Brookdale has two different levels of dementia units Um, one is a crossing which is for people with much milder cognitive impairment which is probably why they were a lot more cognizant and more about more supportive and could play bingo and could, you know, like hang out and do musical acts at mealtime. Um, they were, they're a lot less mild. I mean, it's much milder, the, the cognitive decliner. They're in the earlier stages of, of the disease. Um, and then they also have Claire Bridges, which is um, for people who are a lot further along. And so the guy who was a night wanderer, he was over in the Claire Bridge. And so I kind of, uh, went out of the crossings because there were no night wanderers in the crossings and it was super quiet at night in the crossings like everybody went to bed at 5 p.m and they slept like a good 10 to 12 hours a night and like and most of them because most of these guys in Fort Collins Colorado were farmers and farmers wives and so most of them were up by 5 a.m um, that sounds dreadful that was, I just want to say that sounds dreadful <laughs> get up so early <laughs> go to bed early and get up early that would be the opposite schedule you'd have to bonk me out they're farmers. That's their life. That's really normal <laughs> for them. Um, and, and the one thing I did find is that I locked my door, um, which I had a rare, I mean, most of the units I don't think were lockable, um, but I did lock my door, in, especially at night and in the morning, because if I didn't lock my door, then somebody would like, um, you know, starting at 5 a.m., would kind of in. like wander in and be like, hi, who are you? You know, and, um, and I was yeah, like, because there are no boundaries. Well, um, well, yeah. let's, let's let's take a break, um, and when we come back, let um, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what some of your your takeaways are uh, from your experience in a dementia care unit. We're talking with Jay Newton Small about her experience spending time in a dementia unit voluntarily. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS on air on nine thirty a.m. The Answer. And by the way, remember, Caregiver SOS on air follows immediately after WellMed Radio, Sundays on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline with Jay Newton-Small, who is a writer and uh, has a wonderful program called Memory Wall, in which she... uh, Memory Well. Memory Well, pardon me. Memory Well, in which she documents the stories of people going into memory units so that the uh, staff there get a better idea about who that person is. And it began really when she wrote her dad's story and has blossomed into a really, really neat program. Now she's spent time in a dementia unit, and we're hearing about that experience. Well, Jay, talk a little bit about, was there anything that you learned or kind of 
became an aha moment for you in the dementia unit that you're going to take back to your work with Memory Well, how you deal with the families and writing these stories? Yeah, I guess I would say so. They they do reminiscence therapy in um, you know, which in as part of their programs, and I, it was striking to me to see how they struggled with reminiscence therapy. They were having um, they have these workbooks that they used where they wrote down the answers, and frankly, most of these people were not really capable of writing down sort of comprehensive essay form answers at this point, and. Um, and the questions that they were asked to them were things that they really couldn't relate to. So, for example, one of the questions in reminiscence therapy was, um, what was, like, the, the best invention of your lifetime? And, and all these people said, um, I guess cars. Cars would probably be the best invention of your lifetime. And obviously cars were invented probably well before they were born. Um, but these were farmers' wives who had very – or farmers themselves – who didn't, who weren't very technologically savvy, and this wasn't a question. Maybe if this had particular exercise had been in like Silicon Valley and like their retirement communities, that might have worked. But um, it was one that that really didn't, they couldn't relate to. Um, and so, it, it, part of what we've been doing at Memory Well is trying to find ways to um, use our stories to really build community um, in these in these communities and to to build um, understanding and to help people relate to each other and know each other. And so um, being able, I think, to, to sort of see how they do reminiscence therapy now and then hopefully find ways to improve in it and sort of like an aha moment of like, well, they're not really writing this stuff down. They're not going to be writing this stuff down themselves. And these workbooks get lost. And so how do we find a way where you know, we can engage them in a conversation potentially digitally instead um, with their own stories and their own backgrounds or um, histories that they share in common, um, whether it's something like where were they when the moon landing happened or when JFK was assassinated, sort of things that they might be able to, to sort of share as a history um, versus something that's more broad. And I think it's just trying to think more closely about how Alzheimer's and dementia affect the brain and, and the kinds of questions that um, they might be able to relate to as they regress. Did they do any make-believe at all where instead of relying on the memories, uh, let people make up whatever story they wanted to? No, they didn't do any make-believe. Um, that was not part of it. Um, and that's something that, that's, you know, that would have been actually an interesting, I think, probably an exercise for them because... A lot of the, the ladies in particular were sort of back, you could tell they were sort of in their girlhood. They were talking about um, not just braiding their grandmother's hair, but like being little girls and playing with dolls. And they, a lot of them had dolls that they would carry around as babies. And so um, I think that kind of exercise would actually would have been potentially really fun for them because they... Um, that would have been something that they would have engaged with. Well, did the uh, folks at Brookdale, did you debrief with them at the end of your experience? I don't know if this is part of that program where you got a chance to talk to them about the writing, the difficulty with the writing, and uh, maybe the lukewarm shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the lukewarm shower, they're like, that's sort of necessary for most people so they can't change that um, but they definitely um, we, have, we talked about how we might work with them to improve those reminiscence therapy sessions and 
Um, instead, instead of making it kind of generic questions, making it more like, you know, well, here, you know, I think we do profiles of people and we allow families to build out the full digital timeline of their lives. We might, they might spend um, a reminiscence session looking at, say, Mary Smith's wife, and this is, you know, these are her photos, and this is her husband, and these are her children, and this is the music that she loves, and who else loves this music, and these are the movies that she loved, and that anyone recognizes movies, and sort of discuss and celebrate, you know, each one of them individually, and allow also them to learn about each other, and potentially learn, um, and make connections, and, 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 and figure out things that they had in common, likes and dislikes, and so that was one thing we, we discussed about how we might use them very well. And another is we're sending engagement questions that were a little bit more sort of tailored to their experiences and, and, and kind of thinking about um, who they are and what they might respond to and, and how we might use those answers if they do answer them. And so it was, it was an interesting conversation and one that I think has been, as, as, as an entrepreneur and as somebody who is um, trying to figure out the best, the, the best use of our story, it was really a, a great experience. I want to find out in just a moment how you presented yourself uh, to the residents there. But first, for those who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Jay Newton-Small about her experience spending time uh, living in a memory unit. Uh, how were you presented to the residents there? Um, they were they presented me as an entrepreneur in residence, as a, as a visitor, as somebody who would be just there for a week and was um, working with the staff to, to to help their to change or potentially help their care. Um, and some of the residents, you know, really like their cognitive impairment was super mild. Like there was one resident, um, Len Albright, who was so cool. He was like the coolest guy. You know, he. He'd been um, a Ph.D. professor in sort of um, juvenile behavioral issues and has one of the preeminent researchers in the country sort of looking at um, juvenile sort of delinquency and, and, and sort of illnesses um, and, and how to and discipline and essentially what are the best ways to help those sort of kids who are getting a little dropped out of the system or getting lost in the system to catch up and, and in fact, flourish and excel. And, and he was super erudite and would, like, talk about um, not only his amazing research, but also talk about he loved music and he was kind of a beatnik and he would talk, you know, had these great old records that he would play in his, in his room and would play them really loudly and you'd go in and you'd hang out with him and he would talk to you about all the great artists and musicians that he'd met or got the concerts that he'd gone to. And he almost didn't realize that he had dementia until, you know, he would get to a point where he'd be talking about his kids and then he suddenly realized that he didn't remember his children's names, you know, and, and that would be like a momentary kind of given pause and his struggle and then get upset about it. But then if you got him past being upset about that, he would later on remember their names, you know, and so it was like these moments where you just kind of get lost a bit. Right. Um, and, but it was, it was really, um, it was interesting because I, I was surprised. I mean, they were a lot of the ones, particularly who are mildly impaired, were really like. I mean, they were sort of my dad. It was they would have been like the first sort of five years of of his living with the diagnosis. That's where he was. 
but um, he, he obviously, my dad lived with the disease for 15 years, and so I think I, I because I was caregiver at the end of his life, I saw up close the very end process. Right. Um, and my mother, my mother cared for him in the beginning of the process, and so, um, and so I think she would have well I think you make an important point that folks with dementia you you know it is you're living with the disease it doesn't um, necessarily take over your life until the later stages and it's uh, important to know that you know people do go on living and, there's still a person and, there. And, and still have the person well I don't know we interviewed a gentleman once who actually lived in a dementia unit but he um, got somebody to help admit him and went in as somebody with a, a younger person with a head injury. Um, and his experience may w- was a little bit different than yours. I think he lasted two and a half days before they caught on that he really wasn't head injured. And so I'm curious, do you think that you were t- you would have been treated differently if they didn't know you were the entrepreneur in residence? By the residents themselves? Well, by the by the facility, do you think your experience would have been different if you had gone in just as an undercover resident? I'm just curious if you think it would have been different or you think it would have been about the same? No, it definitely would have been different. I mean, they they, they gave me choice on what I wanted to eat. I went in and out. You know, I went to, there's a gym nearby. I, I was I, I would let myself in and out. And the, and the door code was, you know, it was not brain science. Like, and the door code was, 2018, you know. <laughs> so, right, right. So you were able. Yeah, it was pretty easy to remember. It was pretty easy to remember, and, they, and yeah, but this is something that a lot of those folks wouldn't be able to grasp, or at least if they got it once, they might not remember it again. Um, and so they probably also wouldn't have known what year it is, because that's one of the first things that goes is, is a sense of time, right? Um, and uh, and dates and calendars, and so. Um, but no, I definitely feel that I would have been treated differently had I been. A, re- um, a resident. A, a resident. A resident, sure. resident. And, like, yeah, well, because there's a sense of, uh, there is a much more paternalistic sense of, like, caregiving. You know, we, we appreciate you, uh, their, their appreciate you telling your story. We're flat out of time. For folks who want to get a hold of you and learn more about Memory Wall, what is your website? Memory Well. What's your <laughs> memory website? Well. It's, it's memorywell.com. All one word. Memorywell.com. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. It was great. It was a great story, and we appreciate you coming back to us. You're listening to Caregiver Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, Ron Aaron with Carol Zerno. Special thank you to Jay Newton. Small, up next, take 10. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The Answer. 
be there. Well, we promised take 10, and here we are on 9.30 a.m. The Answer at the end of each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. We welcome Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And Dr. Jamie, uh, as you go through that caregiving process, uh, I think of the poem, as you reach that pathway, do you take the one less traveled or the one that everybody's hopping down? How do you decide what are the right decisions as they come up during the caregiving process? Stay at home, go to assisted living, go to nursing care, bring in home health care, there's a ton of things you have to decide. So so what makes, uh, you know, what are the elements of good decision-making um, as we go along the caregiving journey? Wow, this could be a full-hour segment, couldn't it? It could be. Well, you know, yes. life is so, we were, we were talking to um, a guest, and they were talking about how much more complex things are. I mean, not just the home decisions, but medical decisions. So, you know, we're bombarded all the time from legal, financial, care, medical, all, all these different kinds of decisions. You know, what what do we do to kind of ground ourselves and give us time to make the best decisions we can? You know, even the treatment options, depending on the disease or the affliction, uh, have so multiplied. So true. Caregivers often need to make such tough decisions on, you know, under such tough kind of challenging conditions. And it's interesting, you know, every person is different. Every person has a different path of self-awareness, of self-esteem, of confidence. Every situation is marred by so many different confounding factors. Uh, my personal feeling is that the first thing you have to have is respect, if you will, and dignity for the person that you're taking care of. And, and be able to bring them, if they can, cognitively handle it immediately into the picture after, and this is after, we've actually brought a professional in who can lay out all of these difficult decisions for us clearly. All right, so let me untangle that. The first thing we want is somebody who can help us lay out the path in front of us. And who would that a person be? A little bit be? of a map. Who would that person be? Yep. A geriatric care manager is a fabulous place to start. Uh, licensed clinical social workers who often are geriatric care managers who have a background, you know, in senior care. They have seen the gamut, if you will, of people, of families, and of, of, of patients, if you will, and what may be the best path for them, um, or at least to give you the whole potpourri of different decisions and outcomes that occurred. So, so we have the person on, we identify someone, and we can call our local area agency on aging to help us locate a professional that's going to help us lay out the plan. And then you said something very interesting. You talked about getting kind of getting our head in the right place, thinking about the person that needs the care and, and thinking, you know, I'm going to approach this situation and this person with dignity and respect. They are not my child. They are not someone who is less than me. They're because they're sick, they're down, and because I'm not, I'm up. You know, we're, we're going to get our head in the right place. Absolutely. I think to make the best decisions, Carol, you really have to, A, have self-respect for yourself, which is meaning, again, a path of self-care. But you really have to have respect for the person you're taking care of. As soon as you have these conversations all around them, it's so kind of personally and clinically condescending 
and it makes your loved one just feel lost and feel like a child, like they're losing their independence. So, and that was the third thing that you said was, you know, surprise, actually bring the person getting the care into the conversation, nothing about us without us. That's absolute. That's personal respect. And also, then you won't also be second-guessing decisions. I mean, when you do that, of course, you, again, and we like last week, I think we did the show on, on killing a, a messenger. Um, you have to make sure you can't, you're not the only person to be doing this. When you bring a loved one in, do it strategically. Make sure, A, that you have the physician aboard or a social worker or nurse practitioner, uh, and make sure everybody is aligned in terms of conversation. But whatever you do, do not discount the care the person with the chronic illness. They have to be a player in this process. These difficult decisions may be tough for us to make, but it's even tougher for them when somebody else is making them for them. Well, what do you do? Let's say, ooh, we didn't realize that mom was totally relying on dad and queuing off of him, and dad passes away, and now we realize that mom has pretty severe dementia and is not really able to make her own decisions, like the big kind. What do we do when the person we're caring for either becomes so incapacitated and frail, you know, for whatever reason has a stroke, that they can't talk to us? What do we do in lieu of that? Well, all those what-ifs are decision trees, and that's what we said first. Bring a professional in who's actually gone through this process with countless patients. And that's not difficult to do. As I said, often I, I refer us to psychologytoday.com and says find a therapist. But make sure you go to somebody who is actually strong in background with caregivers and people, obviously, who dealt with chronic illness. That's really the first place I would go and find out this decision tree. Guess what you may find? This is what somebody else found. But to that point, again, a support group will also be able to uh, give you a lot of uh, information to make good decisions. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air's Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and our very special Take 10 expert, Dr. Jamie Heisman, is with us. Well, so, Jamie, what do we do uh, when we're having to make, you know, really complex decisions? We talked about the complexity of some of the medical decisions where it's not really clear cut. I mean, the, the nurse practitioner, the physician is saying, you know, here's the pros and cons of three different things that we could do. Um, you know, what do you do when it's just tough? That's when I would bring a whole family conference in. I would take all the information. Again, this is the adage. Don't ever assume. Ask as many questions as you can to that physician, to that nurse practitioner, to the clinical social worker. And obviously when you're in a quandary and a conundrum and all of a sudden there's maybe too many decisions, bring the entire family in. And again, I'll always say this, if you can, with a third party to be able to facilitate the emotions of it and have a conversation and, again, include your loved one, of course, if your loved one can cognitively participate. So if this gets into the realm of life and death decisions, is there a role for, you know, some sort of spiritual person if the, you know, the person we're caring for has a, a very strong faith? I think you're on target here. I would not only bring the spiritual person in, I would bring the medical person in, I would bring the social person in. You couldn't have enough people who are experienced, who have gone through this, offering us 
information to make the proper decision. But you're 100% right. We can't start where we think our loved one is. We have to start where they're at. And if they are faith-based and they're in the middle of, you know, uh, of a community, if you will, of, of, of pastors and, and preachers and ministers, always include them. It's not a bad idea. Get them all in the same teepee and hash it out. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of our, our own well-med care model where we surround the patient with a whole team of different people um, in life, you know, as a family caregiver. It, you know, two heads are better than one as long as several of the heads aren't beating you up, you know, while you're trying to make these tough decisions. Are there wrong decisions out of this? Can you, can you make a wrong decision and can you then fix that? I think you can, of course. I think that's the informed consent part, Ron. I think you have to be very upfront with everybody that you can be making a wrong decision. Of course, the caregiver that's dealing with issues of death and dying, you know, you probably don't have a second shot uh, of, of biting that apple. But I think that everybody in the group, the family, if you will, the professionals, I think everybody has to understand we're human beings and not human doings. And so we can try something. Let's say we try a skilled nursing facility and it doesn't work. Well, let's keep that out there. Maybe it's an assisted living facility. Maybe we need to redo our house. But you really have to have a consensus and, again, include the loved one and then go from there. Well, I think you make an an important point because there are decisions that you you do need to undo, and people have brought their loved ones home from a facility or changed facilities or decided um, some sort of physical hospice location is better than staying at home because the medical needs are great. Um, so, you know, it, that can be uh, – it's okay if you don't get it right the first time. It, not all the time, but, you know, you can. there's some latitude there. You get to do the best you can. I think that's the best advice, Jamie. Do the best you can. Do the best you can. This perfectionism is not about caregiving. That is possibly the worst way to go into it. Also, this is one good reason why people should have advanced directives. On the death and dying, maybe we don't have to refer to a lot of other people. Maybe we just have to refer to our loved one's wishes. I like that. And if you don't have an advanced directive, do it today or tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. Thank you to Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll catch you again next Sunday at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.